Welcome to Jane Unchained, featuring best-selling author, TV journalist, and JaneUnchained.com founder, Jane Velez Mitchell. In the next few minutes, you'll hear a secret solution to the problems that plague our world. If you want to revolutionize your life, get truly joyful, and jump to the next phase of human evolution, all it takes is one simple choice. Now, here's your host, Jane Velez Mitchell. Hello! Welcome! I hope you are happy, joyous, and free because we could live in a world of natural abundance where there is no world hunger, where climate change is reversed, where people are healthier and they're not in the hospital, where we avoid future pandemics. And all we have to do is make one simple change, and that is get rid of the animal products in our diet. Now, we have with us an incredible guest, Laura Reese of the Agriculture Fairness Alliance. This is an extraordinary organization based in the nation's capital that sends lobbyists into the halls of Congress to argue this point to members of Congress, senators, and their staff. And their staff are often the ones that make the most crucial decisions that you know, the boss signs off on. Laura, you are offering an opportunity for people watching to become champions for animals. Uh, I am a champion for animals, according to your definition. I'm part of this. I'm not asking anybody to do anything that I am not doing myself. I am personally giving you $200 a month so you can hire your next lobbyist. Don't have to do it forever. You don't have to do it forever. But if we get 47 more people to sign up to make that commitment, we can hire another lobbyist. It's crucial right now. We're at a crucial time where the U.S. government is deciding how to deal with climate change, with the pandemics, with agriculture. This is the moment where we need to tell our story. Laura, take it away. Yeah, actually, it's 43 more that we need to hire another lobbyist. We have, since we last talked, uh, four people have signed up as champions. So thank you for recommending this program, Jane. So this was the invention of Jane. She said, hey, how much money do you need <laughs> from about 50 people? Uh, and I said 200 bucks a month to hire the next lobbyist. So our strategy is that the farm bill is everything. And the farm bill comes up for renewal about every five years. And in order to bring our voice to that process and make sure that our perspective is considered and programs shift toward favoring a plant-based future, then we're going to need about 10 lobbyists going into that, which is, you know, we need to raise the money. So, but we have a plan and we have a strategy and uh, we just need the funding. So the next lobbyist will be hired from the Champions Club, which is 50 people giving just $200 a month. Um, and we have a lot of lobbying to do. There's a lot of there's a lot of willingness to do something on climate, and there's a lot of fear in DC that they're going to be stepping on the toes of their funders. So we're going in with solutions that politicians can agree to that actually have meaningful change for the animals and for the climate and public health uh, that are palatable and they're pro-people and they're, they're pro-America and um, it's hard to say no to. So we're going in, bringing our perspective, proposing actual legislation that these politicians can adopt and it will actually move the needle on climate change. So we need 43. That's incredible because when I looked at it, it's we started out with 50, 
49. Okay. I'm very proud to say in a humble way that um, I'm the first one. Let's have a big party when we get the 50. Um, But look, people will spend tens of thousands, even more to put their kids through college. Great. I don't have any kids. Um, But if there's no world, all of everything that we are trying to accomplish within the subset of life on this planet is meaningless. We are at a crucial juncture. We're in the sixth mass extinction. Climate change is a extraordinarily real threat. And the United States leads the way for the rest of the world. And the blind spot is animal agriculture. And there are very powerful arguments to make. And when people hear the arguments, they adjust their behavior. Look at Vice President Kamala Harris. She's friends with Cory Booker, the New Jersey senator who is vegan. She's heard his arguments. I'm certain of it. And now she is dabbling in veganism and vegan before six. Now, we're not saying that all members of Congress are going to be immediately vegan, but what we are saying is they're going to understand the negative impacts that animal agriculture is having on our world. The fact that about 50% of ice-free land is used for animal agriculture, either to grow crops to feed farm animals or to um, destroy forests for cattle grazing. We're 7.9 billion humans raising 80 billion animals who are eating most of the food. And that is the problem. If we eliminated animal agriculture, we could eliminate world hunger because all that food that's going to those animals could go to people who are right now children dying of starvation. We could stop habitat destruction, which would start reversing extinction, wildlife extinction, and we could reforest some of the farmland and immediately start lowering the temperature of the planet because trees absorb carbon if we start reforesting farmland. These are very basic arguments that our U.S. senators and our members of Congress are not hearing because you've got the meat, dairy, and pharmaceutical lobbies just sweeping over them. Now, we sometimes get cynical and say, well, uh, there's no, there is. Let me ask you, in terms of those who might be on the fence and go, okay, this is a big sacrifice. How do I know that the lobbyist is actually going to get in the front door of these senators and members of Congress's office and talk to some of these staffers? What has been your experience with the one very impressive lobbyist that you have there right now? Yeah, the what you're buying is relationships. It's called the relationship market. Harvard University wrote a paper on this in 2015 called Lobbying the Relationship Market. So we're, we hired our lobbyist because, well, for one thing, he can make a convincing case and argue eloquently. But it's also for his Rolodex, who he knows in D.C., and he, he can get meetings with a lot of the key people who we need to talk to, especially on the ag committees. Now, the thing with lobbying that uh, surprised me when I first started getting into this was the reason why companies lobby so much is because the return on investment is through the roof. You put a dollar into lobbying, and if you're, you're, you have a proper lobbying army, 
every dollar you put into lobbying brings back a thousand to two thousand dollars to your bottom line. So it's incredibly lucrative because it's effective. You may not win every lobbying uh, campaign, but when you do win, you do win big. And what we're bringing to the table is we're lobbying for the environment and the animals. So when we win big, it's going to win big for both of those groups and humans too, of course. Um, so that's that's the plan with Agriculture Fairness Alliance. Now, we're not asking for anything really drastic, actually. We're just lobbying to level the playing field. I'm going to tell you a few stats that we've been cooking up, and our research analyst, Josh, is double-checking the numbers, so don't quote on the exact dollar amount. But when you look at the 2020 subsidies to the farm sector, they totaled about $53 billion in 2020. And the biggest recipient was corn. But when you look at the end products that generate the most methane, which is the predominant greenhouse gas that's, um, that the ag sector contributes to the overall greenhouse gas emissions of the US, we were paying pork producers over $2,600 per ton of methane emissions. So we are subsidizing methane emissions. Beef producers, $1,600 per ton, we paid them in 2020 to produce methane. Uh, dairy, $1,500, and rice, $800. So we're going into DC and we're saying, hey, how about we just level the playing field on subsidies and shift that shower of money toward plant-based, low greenhouse gas, food production, high protein, we can shift our protein consumption toward plant-based protein. And you know what? Those ruggedly independent cattle ranchers, they don't need to be on the public dole, right? So let's take them off of it, stop subsidizing their methane emissions, and start subsidizing the crops that we all need to be healthy, like nuts and beans and lentils and you compound this with the, with the fact that the Plant-Based Food Association reports that their members say they have to source over half of their inputs for their plant-based products from overseas. Well, this is madness. Maybe we should be subsidizing the plant-based food sector and building up the supply chains so that we can have some domestic production feeding that growing, massively growing uh, food sector. Now, all of this makes perfect sense. However, um, often these arguments are subsumed by what I would call alternative facts. I was just at a hearing um, where the California Coastal Commission was deciding between essentially, uh, if you boil down all the mumbo jumbo, uh, helping the Thule elk who are there on this national seashore federally paid for land, taxpayer funded land, or the dairy farmers. And you had politician after politician gave, get up and say, talk about heritage and, and the dairy farms and the heritage and that they are climate change mitigators, which is an absolute lie. It is, it is a lie. They're the problem. They are creating the climate change problem. Animal agriculture is a leading cause of climate change. And these politicians were saying the exact opposite. And of course, uh, and even though independent studies show that 
huge amounts of manure and feces and urine are going into the ocean where people come, tourists, and to swim and to look at the elk. And they bring in so much more money than the subsidized dairy farmers. And yet the California Coastal Commission sided with the dairy farmers over and a lot of people getting up and talking. A lot of people. I was one of many, many people. And yet they sided with the dairy and the cattle farmers uh, over the elk, which is, that's what people, the tourists come to see. They don't yeah. come to see a dairy operation. They come to see the wildlife and they come to swim in the waters that are being polluted by the dairy farms. So this is why every time I see government uh, ethical bankruptcy, I say we need to have people in there telling our stories. And we've shown that when we hit critical mass, we can pass things that would be incomprehensible. Here in California, we passed the Cruelty-Free Cosmetics Act, which had the entire cosmetics industry. That was social compassion and legislation. Yeah. Mancuso's organization. It seemed like impossible. But when forces were mobilized and Judy knows how to get into those halls of the Sacramento legislature mm -hmm. and make those arguments and she can get a foothold. And it's the same thing nationally. It is. It is. Absolutely. It's all about developing those relationships and helping politicians put forward legislation that they can stand behind and win with their voters because ultimately they want to be reelected. So uh, we can get in there and be creative and help them figure out legislation that's going to be win, win, win. And in fact, it can be win for everybody. AFA, we're working with farmers to lobby. We have Wisconsin dairy farmers who are working with us and they have written compelling letters to their, their federal reps and uh, senators. And um, they make a case for, look, why are you paying us to keep producing into a surplus market that is volatile and is going to keep booming and busting? And how about you help us change to producing for this new emerging plant-based food market? And they are desperate to transition. They would rather be paid to transition and eliminate tons of methane emissions from their farms uh, rather than continue to get bailouts or get conservation funding that is just going to help them take on more debt to install elaborate means to deal with all of the manure or the feed or the nutrients that they're generating on their farms. There's a lot of problems associated with animals, too many animals being raised for food in a certain area of, of um, uh, land. And Congress knows this. They have actually passed legislation saying that all of the conservation funding through the Environmental Quality Incentives Program, or EQIP, they, they wrote a law saying at least 60% of that has to go to livestock farmers. Well, why? Because they understand that livestock is the source of the pollution, and that's where you need all of the mitigation efforts. They since amended it to 50% and then 10% for wildlife projects. But they know that when you have too many animals in close quarters, 
you have pollution issues. So how about we just stop subsidizing those operations and start moving those subsidies toward plant-based food producers? Um, you know, if you're saying, wow, this is starting to sound wonky. Yes, exactly. <laughs> no, no. Wait, no, no, no. I'm giving you a compliment. This is the hard work that these lobbyists are going to go in and do. We can sit around talking to each other all day about creating a plant-based world. The devil is in the details, getting into the weeds on this legislation and talking to people who have the power to take a, a pencil and change something. I mean, because right now the money, our taxpayer money is going to subsidize the very thing that is destroying the planet, factory farming. I don't know if you saw in the Washington Post today, there was a big article about the, um, and not to get too into politics, because this is a bipartisan problem, okay? It is. There is, um, it, it's not a question of red or blue. The Republicans uh, have their issues. The Democrats simultaneously will sit there at a steak fry and talk about cl climate change. So it, they're both bad on this subject. And this is the big blind spot that we ignore at our own peril. And we're running out of time. We've only got like six years to fund this. That's why it's not such a big ask to say, can you give $200 a month if you are just joining us? We are talking to Laura Reese of the Agriculture Fairness Alliance. She is seeking 43 champions to commit to giving $200 a month so they can hire their second lobbyist to go into the halls of Congress and to talk to U.S. Senators, members of Congress, and particularly their staffers, who are often the ones that make the real decisions that then hand the piece of paper, okay? And then the, we've, we, how many times have we seen that they voted on bills that they haven't even read? Thousands and thousands of pages. And so these staffers, if they get it, they can make the adjustments. They have one Lobbyists in there right now who's doing an incredible job. I saw a presentation. If you become a champion, you will get uh, personalized updates from the lobbyists that you participated in hiring. And it's kind of a club, a champions club. I offer to throw a party uh, in for the uh, 50 champions um, that join this very exclusive club to change the world, to save the world, because it is going to be fun too. We're going to feel like we're going to feel like we're having an impact because we are having an impact. We've got a caller, Sarah. Your question or thought? Hi, I actually have a suggestion, possibly, to get people to know about the Animal Agriculture Alliance, a Fairness Alliance. I think that you should go outside of grocery stores and tell people about your organization so people know because this is a consumer issue and people are buying, so you should go to the consumers directly. That's just my personal opinion. What else are you doing besides um, getting a lobbyist? Is there anything else going on? Thank you, Sarah. Yeah. Great question. Yeah, thank you, Sarah. Um, yeah, well, right now we're focused on building the lobbying army. And then phase two, we'll be developing a PAC so we can fund uh, campaigns of politicians. And we're also encouraging people to run for office. I mean, anybody listening right now, if you've ever thought of running for office, 
do so. You can run for office on your local city council all the way up to um, the federal level. And the more people we actually have in office, the more influence we'll have, right? Um, so those are the two things we're doing is lobbying and then the next step is a PAC. But in terms of raising money, um, the Champions Club is one of four ways that we're raising money. The other is regular memberships. And in fact, we hired our first lobbyist on uh, from hundreds of people giving $10 a month each. And I invite anybody to join as a regular member too. That's the backbone of AFA. And then we also have corporate sponsorships. So we have two corporate sponsors right now, Hungry Planet Foods and All Y'all's Jerky. And uh, we're adding more. So we expect the corporate sponsorship program to fund a third lobbyist. Um, and then we're also asking for large donations from a few like angel investors. At, in terms of the marketing plan, getting the word out, I love that idea of going to grocery stores. We had, back before COVID, we had some plans to go to some farmer's markets and <laughs> talk to people who were, you know, buying plant-based foods. Um, also, veg fests and other conferences. Uh, and then online, we're really stepping up our, we're trying to build our Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and um, Reddit presence and we've been getting into Clubhouse a little bit lately, too. Um, so I would ask anybody who wants to help us spread the word, please follow us on those platforms. It's Ag Fairness Alliance on most of them, although Twitter's Ag Fairness, just because Twitter, you want a short name. Um, follow us and, and repost what we've been writing. We've been doing a lot of research into the subsidies in 2020 and then baseline 2016 and comparing those across different end markets. So if you look at our Instagram, we have, we just put out yesterday, the fact that $9 billion at least went to just corn, just corn got 9 billion. Well, nearly half of that is fed to animals. So that's an indirect subsidy to beef, chicken and pig producers. And then um, the, we've just been, posting about what the stats are. And next we'll be posting about how much money we're paying these producers to essentially generate methane. I mean, the U.S. government has a split personality. We are talking about climate change. It's the headline over and over. And then by the same token, we are subsidizing. Us taxpayers are forced to subsidize the very industry that is causing climate change, and that's animal agriculture. Now, let me say this. Uh, there have been numerous uh, debates over what percentage uh, of climate change greenhouse gas emissions are caused by animal agriculture. So uh, many years ago, um, the United Nations did a report called Livestock's Long Shadow, which said it was 18.1%. Then two World Bank economists got together and said that was way underestimated. It was 51%. Then uh, the powers that be somehow got involved and now they've dropped it down to 14.5%. A new white paper has come out and said, made a very powerful argument that animal agriculture is responsible for 87% of greenhouse gas emissions. And if you wanna get the basic picture, it's that about half of ice-free land is used in some way, shape or form for animal agriculture, either cattle grazing or to grow crops 
to feed 80 billion animals that we raise and kill for food every year. We're only 7.9 billion humans raising 80 billion animals who are eating most of the food. So that land that has been deforested for animal agriculture is not absorbing carbon because trees absorb carbon. If we eliminated animal agriculture, we could reforest a lot of that land and those trees, those reforested trees could immediately begin absorbing carbon and we could immediately begin reducing the temperature of the earth back to where it was a couple of hundred years ago and avoid a climate apocalypse. The Paris Climate Accords, even if they instituted all of them, the only thing that they would possibly do is stop the acceleration of climate change, the global warming. It wouldn't reverse it. The right. one thing that would reverse it is reforestation. But do you have what percentage of members of Congress and U.S. senators are aware of this fact? Uh, with reforestation, I think. Well, now we have uh, more who are <laughs> compared to the last um, the last administration. I find that with the forestry um, argument in the U.S., a lot there's a lot of opposition to it because when you look at the actual the the acreage of forests in America, the Forestry Service has actually done a fairly decent job of keeping it. Uh, level for the past, what, 100 years. But when you look back to 1650, the forest, um, there's certainly some headroom for where we could replant and get back to those, um, increasing our forestry acreage, for sure. Um, yeah, I think, I think a lot of, I've seen the, the calculations on the Hill evolve in just the last three years. When I was there in 2019, um, we were just coming off the heels of Republicans pretty much saying, oh, these climate alarmists, uh, there's, you know, it's debatable whether climate change is human caused. And it, that was about the point when Republicans actually started saying, yeah, it's real. We understand we need to do something, but everything has to be market based. Everything has to be market based. And um so at least we've kind of come along since then, although this should have been the discussion back in the 80s. Uh, we, you know, if we had just instituted like a $20 a ton carbon tax back in the 80s, we would be in such a different place right now. Uh, uh, instead, know, we are paying yeah. people to generate it. This is analogous to what happened with the electric car. Back in the early 90s, uh, the electric car was developed. And if you ever seen the documentary, Who Killed the Electric Car? American automotive industry killed it. They took their cars back and they destroyed them. And there's a great documentary. They just didn't want to wow. do the changes. They didn't want to retool their factories. And the executive who made that decision later said it was the worst decision of his life. Um, we could have all been riding around in electric cars since the 90s. The people who had the electric cars as a test love them. And some of them are famous vegans and they fought. They literally, the documentary shows them fighting with people as the, they come and they take the electric cars away and they destroy them. Uh, so we had to go through a war because let's face it, wars with Middle East have a lot to do with oil and gas. Um, and a lot of people died. 
And now, where are we? Electric cars. It's the only thing anybody could talk about. Okay, Tesla and all the SPACs and everything else. So um, it took, well, here we are 30 years later, right? 30 years that we delayed. So it's a similar situation with animal agriculture. Now people are starting to talk about it. They can't block it anymore. We've got films like The Incredible Seaspiracy that just um, skyrocketed to number one in a whole bunch of countries, top 10 in 40 countries. Uh, They've gotten a half a million signatures on their petition that basically shows we're destroying the fishing industry is destroying the oceans. And that's another major cause of climate change. Got to watch that film from the same folks who made Cowspiracy, which showed that animal agriculture is destroying the planet. And a lot of the environmental groups are taking money from the animal agriculture industry. The same folks who brought us What the Health, which shows that the medical industry is making money off of people getting sick. They don't want to prevent illness. They want to treat people who are already sick. It's the meat, dairy, pharmaceutical, fast food, industrial complex. Now, we have to break through that. But that's why I'm saying the most important thing we can do is get to people into the halls of Congress. We can go to all the protests. We can um, foment on Facebook and Instagram and Rizzle and Clubhouse, but the one place we really need to be is in Congress and in the White House. And that's why why I'm saying, people, it's the most important. As soon as I heard about this and, and I watched your presentation from your lobbyist, who is totally professional and you know presents in a corporate manner, which is super important to get in the door. Mm-hmm. I said, mm-hmm. this is the answer. Let's get 10 of these people in there making our case. And, yeah. and we're, we're breaking through. Cory Booker, a vegan senator from New Jersey has gotten on some major committees. We, we are close, yep. but we've got to break through. You don't want to leave the ball at the five yard line. Uh, take nope. take it away, Laura. Yeah. So you mentioned about all these industries and just stepping back. These these big huge industries are protecting the status quo because they are profiting off the status quo, and these are the groups, the trade groups, who have realized the return on investment for lobbying helps them delay, helps them maintain the status quo. So as long as we're not at that political table, bringing our voice, we're just letting them run up the score and protect their status quo uh, over and over. And it's an easy position to lobby from because really all you're doing is convincing politicians to do nothing. Whereas we need to go in there and convince politicians to do something. And it's, it's challenging, but as long as we're not there, what hope do we have for moving the needle at all? And it's pretty clear that once you have a team of three, four lobbyists, you can start to really have an effect put on a full court press in DC. And that's what we're planning to do. Our goal is 10, but even if we just end up with uh, three lobbyists going into the farm bill, we are going to have a huge effect that otherwise wouldn't have happened. And the farm bill is everything. This is where all of those subsidies, well, most of those subsidies are um, 
are developed and put into law from conservation to like you were saying forestry to uh, nutrition programs to commodity protection programs that like the corn producers benefit off of. Uh, we have to have our voice in there and saying, hey, um, why are we putting into law this maxim that you can give a half a million dollars to a dairy farmer to install a methane digester on their land, but there's no means for giving that half a million dollars to a dairy farmer to transition to growing hazelnuts, like two of the dairy farmers we're working with in Wisconsin want to do. It's, it's madness especially when you consider the, uh, the, the, the fact that you have to go to these extraordinary conservation efforts in order to deal with waste that otherwise these farmers wouldn't be producing if they could just get help moving into another industry that's eco-friendly. And, uh, you know, not every dairy farmer, not every livestock farmer wants to transition, but for those who do, the USDA should have in place programs to help them, and then they can be climate change heroes. One of these farms we calculated, if once he's once he stops breeding cows into existence and he fully transitions to hazelnuts, that's two hundred tons of methane per year he will no longer be producing. It's pretty staggering. If you are, so yeah, we need to get our voices into the halls of Congress. Sorry. If you are just joining us, we are here with Laura Reese of the Agriculture Fairness Alliance, a Washington, D.C. based organization that sends lobbyists into the halls of Congress to argue the case that animal agriculture is a leading. There's a new study that argues it is the leading, but nobody disputes that it is a leading cause of climate change. Habitat destruction, wildlife extinction, human world hunger, and preventable human health issues, diseases mm -hmm. like heart attacks, which prior to the pandemic killed one out of every four people for years. The American Heart Association says that. That is a result of eating animal products. They're the only products that have cholesterol because animals produce cholesterol. There's no cholesterol in plant-based products. And then, of course, the connection between animals and the pandemic, the World Health Organization just urged wet markets to stop selling wild animals. Of course, they should stop selling all animals. We should stop wet, wet markets, but it's a step in the right direction. That got almost no news coverage. I thought, well, at least they're going to talk about that. No. The meat, dairy, pharmaceutical, fast food, industrial complex, which runs advertiser-based media, is not going to let us discuss this. Bill Gates, who is no vegan radical, uh, recently went on national cable television and said, we're going to have to switch to synthetic meat, which is his nerdy, wonky way of saying we have to go plant-based. And he was ridiculed. Yep. So what we have to do is get into Congress and make the arguments because... Look, the decline and fall of any civilization, if you want to talk about it, even ancient Rome, it's when the institutions of government become so corrupt, and I'm not even talking about a legal sense, I'm talking about morally corrupt, that it becomes a, a, a joke, that there's no uh, redemption, that everybody's cynical. And I don't believe we're at that point. I think that there are people who do go into government 
um, to try to make the world a better place. And I think oh, a yeah. lot of these staffers are people that if you make a powerful argument and you present the facts, they will uh, listen. And But we've got to get in there and make the arguments. They're not hearing it on mainstream media. Yeah, okay, yeah. the World Health Organization said stop selling wild. This was a couple of days ago. Stop selling wild wild animals in wet markets. Zero coverage. Yeah. The mainstream media does not even use the word slaughterhouse. They call slaughterhouses meat packing plants. Like right. you're going to take a steak and put it in a purse and go off shopping. They can't <laughs> even use the word slaughterhouse. You'll notice it's verboten. Um, so Again, oh, we've got a caller. Let's go to Christina. Christina, your question or thought for Laura Reese. Yes, hi there. Um, yes, I just caught the, the last um, part of this program. So I totally agree with what, what Jane is explaining to, to the audience. So um, I'm just wondering, are, are there some other media platforms and also in, in addition to what you all are doing, which is great, you know, through legislation, lobbying, and all those efforts are much needed, but um, are there any possible new creative media, uh, such as Jane and Chain, <laughs> that's definitely it, but um, how do we encourage to have more of these media platform, um, you know, to, to put more of this content on, too? Well, um, I guess that question is kind of addressed to me. Uh, you guys are in there dealing. Look, the power structure and uh, Christina, excellent question, by the way. Excellent question. The power structure is the government, private enterprise and the media. And uh, uh, the media is, is pretty much bought and paid for by the advertisers. That's why some of the greatest films that you're seeing Seaspiracy, Cowspiracy, What the Health, The Game Changers, and I'd like to throw in our vegan cooking show, New Day, New Chef, um, and New Day, New Chef Support and Feed, are on subscription-based platforms. We're on Amazon's Prime uh, Video, and uh, Seaspiracy is on Netflix. They're not beholden to advertisers in the same way. So what we really need to do is do an end run around mainstream media. I was in mainstream media for 38 years. Uh, I was behind the curtain. I, and I, by hook or by crook, I managed to do animal rights stories. Didn't make me super popular, but not with, in the house, but I did it. But the point is that uh, what I say is insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result. If I had a nickel for every time somebody said, oh yeah, they were gonna cover this protest or they were gonna cover, but there was a breaking news story. That's what you say when you want to get out of covering something. There's always a breaking news story somewhere. So my answer was, let's do an end run. Let's get this information out. Now, we're reaching a fraction, obviously, a tiny fraction of the audience that you're going to reach when you're on a major network. But done beats perfect. If, if you can't get on, and sometimes the stories are so twisted, you're like, why didn't I, why did I even bother? Um, and, and what I've found is the way you get on mainstream media is a lot of people have to get arrested, okay? There are protests against slaughterhouses and dramatic things with thousands of people marching literally in uh, San Francisco. And the only time there's coverage is if the last time I saw a local news show up at, at a, a protest against a wet market was uh, 37 or 38 people 
got arrested, including Alexandra Paul of Baywatch fame. That's how you get coverage. But that's not fair. That's not right. You shouldn't have to have 38 people get arrested in order to get a story on, which was then presented in such a twisted way that it made it about something that it wasn't even. Um, none of the animals were shown in the slaughterhouse. So it was, uh, it was presented as a story that was persecution of the owners of the slaughterhouse by these people. So forget about local news. Honestly, I was in local news for decades. And you can pretty much forget about cable, although there are some notable exceptions. Fareed Zakaria has done some really good reporting on uh, the connection between our toxic relationship with wildlife and pandemics. But um, getting back to the government, yes, we need to work on media. But it's not just a numbers game. It's not just how many thousands of people are watching or how many millions of people are watching. It's who are those people? For example, we're doing an interview right now with Laura Reese, who runs Agriculture Fairness Alliance in the nation's capital, sending highly professional, articulate lobbyists into the halls of Congress to convince members of Congress and their staff to defund, stop subsidizing animal agriculture. If five people watching decide to become champions, that could achieve more than 100,000 people watching and not doing anything. And again, make your pitch for the champions uh, cause. Yeah, so the champions cause is when we have 50 people giving $200 a month, we will hire the next lobbyist. And to tie in with the previous discussion uh, about media, these independent documentaries have sway with politicians too. And when we have lobbyists, we can make sure that like we can host a viewing party, we can have a lunch and learn and, and present, like we could show Seaspiracy if we wanted to. For example, the House Ag Committee, uh, what, two months ago, had a hearing talking about agriculture and climate change and David Scott, the chairman, he played the trailer from Kiss the Ground. <laughs> and he had on the panel a bunch of the people who were featured in Kiss the Ground. And they talked all about regenerative agriculture. They talked about soil health a lot. Um, there was some discussion points that I would say I disagreed with. But on the whole, it was clear that this media was absolutely changing minds in the people on that committee, on the Ag Committee. So these, these shows are absolutely crucial and it's not just limited to people watching their living rooms. We can take these as lobbying material, which um, we absolutely will. So the Champions Club is where we hire the next lobbyist. And what uh, I learned studying the lobbying industry, mainly from a book called The Business of America is Lobbying, is you really need to have two, three, at, at least lobbyists who are fully dedicated to your mission. So they're not only pitching legislation, they're also, they have their ear to the ground and they know what's brewing up and they understand what the, all those trade groups are lobbying for and it allows us to mobilize quickly. For example, our current lobbyist, he just texts me things that I need to be aware of that are moving in DC and we wouldn't have that visibility and um, without him there. So it's not just talking to people and convincing them to do what you want. It's 
talking to the staffers and showing them how they could sponsor legislation that's right in line with what they have said they care about and that they've sold to their voters. And it's also in line with moving the needle on uh, reduced shifting subsidies to leveling the playing field, shifting subsidies toward eco-friendly crops and uh, providing programs so that farmers can transition, you know, optional. Uh, these are easy yeses, and we, we have a lot of ideas like these going forward, but we need lobbyists to get these ideas and make sure that they are positioned in a way that's easy for politicians to agree to. Now, uh, I think you're raising so many incredible questions. Some people might say, well, why you? I mean, what? But you have a background in business, which is another reason I like your approach because you've been in the business world, the corporate world, so you understand that kind of thinking because good intentions only get you so far. Tell us about yourself and how you ended up doing this and what your background is. For those who might say, well, okay, this sounds good, but you know, sometimes I've given to things that haven't panned out. Well, this one, I wouldn't, look, I don't ask people to do what I don't do myself. Okay, Great. so I am a champion. I do give $200 a month and um, I feel very good about it because I know it's targeted like an arrow right at the bullseye. The bullseye is Capitol Hill. There's nothing more important. Um, there, I can't think of anything more important, honestly, but tell us about yourself. Uh, well, I my career was in Silicon Valley, working at a semiconductor company uh, in product planning. My education is biomedical and electrical engineering. Um, in the product planning group, I really gravitated toward working with customers. And what I really liked was uncovering what they were really trying to do so that we could write uh, business plans or product plans for the next generation of semiconductors we were building, field programmable gate arrays, and um, translate that into actionable plans for the engineering department. And I really liked it because when you're un when you're uncovering with an open mind uh, what somebody cares about, it's just fascinating where they'll take you. You have all these preconceived notions, but when you ask open-ended future-oriented, um, customer-oriented questions, they will tell you all kinds of magic things that you can use to inform what you're doing. And one of the reasons I think lobbying appeals to me is because it's very much that uncovering half of what you need to do is understand what each politician's platform is, what they really care about, and try to give them a solution for what they're already driving for. It, it's less about saying, hey, here's this thing you should care about, do what I want. It's more about, hey, you said you care about X, Y, Z. Uh, here's something you can do that will move the ball forward in that area, and it's an easy yes. So the um, what I bring to the table is like, I'm not a lobbyist by training, but honestly, lobbyists, there's no school for getting a degree in lobbying. People come to it from all sorts of areas. Usually they come to it because they were insiders in DC. Like they were on a, worked at a, at a, um, they were on a campaign of a politician who won and then they went on to be 
a DC staffer and then they developed relationships or they worked at an agency like USDA and developed relationships there. It's all about their Rolodex and then they can put their shingle out and be a lobbyist. Um, so uh, you call me a lobbyist, <laughs> um, but really we're funding money and hiring people to lobby for us and then bringing this, um, this messaging notion of what's going to be palatable for these politicians, what can they get behind and what can they really champion with full throated enthusiasm. And that's what we're bringing. There's absolutely things that can be done because there's so much baked in injustice in the system. You were talking about how it's not necessarily Democrat or Republican. I mean, what's more Republican than getting people off the public dole? And yes. that is, <laughs> these subsidies are just having people on the public dole. I'm not saying remove all farm subsidies. Clearly, we need some insurance protections, you know, for disaster assistance. But the the way they're, they get paid out is disproportionately to the industries that are lobbying the most. In 2020, as far as we can tell, because some of the programs don't report very clearly, but you dig in and you find data and you put the pieces together, as far as we can tell, half of subsidies supported animal agriculture. Well, if that's 18% of our calories and it's uh, so pollutive that Congress actually writes laws saying that half of conservation funding has to go to the livestock sector, what are we subsidizing it for? It's an optional thing for people to eat. It's hardly required in the human diet. A lot of us don't know that, but a lot of the people listening to the show right now understand that you don't have to eat animals to thrive. In fact, a lot of people, once they stop eating animals, they pick up a whole food plant-based diet. They, they improve their health. But, you know, why are we subsidizing half to animal agriculture? Shelly Pingree out of Maine, she often makes the point that there's the MyPlate nutritional guidelines, which are put out by the same agency that puts out farm subsidies. But you've got the MyPlate that says half of our plate should be fruit and vegetables. Well, something like 2%, maybe 4% of subsidies went to fruit and vegetables. Half went to livestock. Well, that portion... If you get 100% of your protein, that portion's just 20% of your plate. And you don't even have to get that protein from animals. You can get it from legumes and nuts and other sources. So the fact that the subsidies, so asking for subsidies to simply match the MyPlate recommendations, it, it's just leveling the playing field. We're not asking for anything outrageous. We're just asking for a little bit of fairness in farm policy and to get the power back so that our government that is of the people and for the people does what's in the interest of the people, not the people, not the small little groups that are profiting off of the status quo and helping themselves to a disproportionate amount of the subsidies that us taxpayers are funding. Now, wouldn't you love to say that argument is happening to a staffer on a senator's payroll? One of the frustrations of our movement is that a lot of times we're talking to the converted. One of the first things that I do every time I speak publicly is ask how many people here are already plant-based? 
How many people here are already vegan? If we're already vegan, we already agree. That's not the point. The point is to get to people who don't have this information and who have the power. We're going right to the power. It's like plugging in a socket into the electrical current that runs the country. And this is why uh, when I saw the first uh, lobbyists that Agriculture Fairness Alliance has hired who made an incredible presentation and who sounded super articulate, presented very corporate and made these great arguments that are very commonsensical in that, that you can't really even disagree with. You can't disagree with the fact that we're 7.9 billion humans raising and killing 80 billion farmed animals every year who uh, are eating a lot of food. Yep. Okay, facts that people don't think about. So I urge you, if you really want to save the planet from an ecological apocalypse, it sounds a rather dramatic, but that's what we're facing right now. And if you'd like the powers that be to actually think about the solution, which they're not doing right now, there's a huge blind spot, it's animal agriculture, and they are not thinking about that. So they, whatever they're doing right now, tragically will not work. If you would like to be a champion, please, the link is right there in the intro, Animal, uh, sorry, Agriculture Fairness Alliance. And I'd like to give a shout out to Renee King Sonnen, who yes. is the founder of the Rowdy Girl Sanctuary. And uh, we are having a RAP Summit, Rancher Advocacy Program Summit on July 24th. Um, she is a board member of your organization, Agriculture Fairness Alliance. And she has come up with a lot of these ideas that you're putting into action. She's a former cattle rancher, now a vegan sanctuary owner. Um, that's the kind of transition that there are so many ranchers and farmers out there eager to make. But are there any subsidies for them? No, but we can change that. So I really urge you, this is the most important thing. You know, somebody might say, well, I've got kids. I gotta, well, for your kids. Do yep. we want to leave our children a dystopia that is where it's too hot to walk across the street? Is that good for them? Is it good for business? Is it good for anything? This is the solution to so many of our problems. And, and we can go right into the heart of the power structure. I plead with you. I urge you, open your wallets for this. There is no more important thing that you could spend your money on. There is no hot tub, no electric bicycle, no new TV set that is more important than helping Agriculture Fairness Alliance get lobbyists into the halls of Congress. Be a champion. Um, thank you so much for joining us, Laura Reese. Let's hope we get some more champions. We're, we've got, we started with 50, now we're down to 43 we need. So let's get some more and, and it's gonna be so good. It's gonna feel so great to say, we help save this planet from uh, some, some very bad impacts of climate change. See you next time here on Voice America Radio. Thank you for tuning in to Jane Unchained. We hope you'll join Jane Velez Mitchell for the next edition of her program next Monday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time and 10 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Influencers Channel. 
Meanwhile, have a peaceful week.